0: Welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. Back to the old format this week and an awful lot to fit in. A week or so ago, I mentioned that I was selling my house. I'll be leaving the shed and moving into a kind of a studio space. But don't worry, as i said previously, nothing's going to get any more professional than uh, I can currently uh, achieve. But anyway, The reason I wanted to mention that this week is because I've been buying and selling houses since the, I suppose, the late 1980s. And back in those days when you came to sell a house, you would have a visit from a photographer who would, uh, that would be his job. I, I know they used to have to do sort of two or three a day houses a day. And they would come along and I would enjoy a conversation with them about photography and they would make some very good images. They would supply them to the estate agent and, of course, they would then make booklets and printouts and put them in the windows of their stores on the high street. Well, things have changed and only recently, uh, when we put our house up for sale, the estate agent came to see me. As she walked around the house, she saw lots of books around photography, on photography, and a lot of photographs on the wall, and she asked what I did. I said, well, I'm kind of involved with photography. The conversation kind of ended there, and she told me that um, she would be taking the photographs of the house and that uh, another photographer would not be doing so. She said she'd be using her iPhone to do this. She walked around the house, she took the pictures. And that was that. A day later, she sent me a brochure, a leaflet, and an example of the images that would go up on the uh, website and so forth to sell the house. The pictures were terrible, absolutely terrible. But I didn't say anything about it because a couple of years ago, we'd sold another house. And uh, when we sold that one, The estate agent turned up and the agency had their own DSLR camera with a super, super wide lens added. When the pictures were taken, they then went back and did a ton of post-production on it that made the images and the house look ridiculous. It looked like Willy Wonka's factory. The colours were so intense. Anyway, going back to the iPhone... The images that the uh, lady took, this time with her smartphone, which were so bad, were put up on the website on the Friday morning. Within a couple of hours, we had two inquiries of people who wanted to come and see the house. I'd already made a deal with the estate agent that I would be showing people around. That's not fashionable nowadays in the UK. It's how it used to be. But now the estate agent seems to think that you've got to go out and keep out of the way of the prospective buyer in case you put them off. Well, I don't agree with that. I think that actually I live in the house, I know the house, I can answer all of the questions better than any estate agent who doesn't. So two groups of people came round, two couples actually, independently. They looked at the house, uh, they made an offer on the house that day for the full asking price and the sale of our house took precisely one morning. The fact that the photographs were so poor made absolutely no difference to the sale. The fact that a photographer was no longer employed to make those images made absolutely no difference to the sale. This may not be what we all want to hear. But for me, it's a fantastic example of how, as photographers, we have to accept the inevitable and look forward to be creative as to how we will make money without photography in the future. Whilst we're talking about the future, the future that's now perhaps for many, the future that is to come, AI, I'm afraid, is another topic of conversation for this week. I think it's going to keep on cropping up for a while, but let's see. Anyway, what I saw on the Petapixel website was this headline. Samsung argues that there is no such thing as a real picture. In a recent interview with Samsung regarding its push into generative AI, the South Korean company took a strong and likely polarising stance. There is no such thing as a real picture, they said while arguing that not only are Samsung's new AI photo-editing features necessary, but that they also are ethical. Samsung's head of customer experience, Patrick Chaumet, took it a step further and argued that no photo is really real anyway. He says there was a very nice video by Marquez Brownlee last year on the moon picture he starts, uh, referencing last year's debacle where some users accused Samsung that its smartphones were not actually capturing the moon, but overlaying a filter to make it look like they were. Samsung denied the accusation that it was overlaying a previously uh, existing image onto images of the moon. Everyone was like, is it a fake? Is it not fake? There was a debate around what constitutes a real picture. And actually, there is no such thing as a real picture. As soon as you have sensors to capture something, you reproduce what you're seeing, and it doesn't mean anything. There is no real picture. You can try to define a real picture by saying, I took that picture. But if you use AI to optimise the zoom, the autofocus, the scene, is it real or is it all filters? There is no real picture, full stop. Lumping in any type of digital assistance with photo capture, with all types of AI, is certainly a bold stance. But Shome says this while at the same time arguing that authenticity still matters. It's a bit of a confusing stance, but the Samsung executive clarifies himself. Questions around authenticity are very important, and we, Samsung, go about this by recognising two consumer needs two different customer intentions neither of them are new but generative ai will accelerate one of them one intention is wanting to capture the moment wanting to take a picture that's as accurate and complete as possible to do that we use a lot of ai filtering modification and optimization to erase shadows reflections and so on but we are true to the user's intention which was to capture that moment. Wow, there's a lot to unpick there. Over to you. This week, we welcome to the podcast to explain to us what photography means to him in under five minutes, Michael Robert Williams, who grew up in the small town of Congleton, just south of Manchester in the northwest of England. He moved to London with his camera, a photography degree, enough money to live on for a few months, and whatever would fit in the back of the car. Still based in London, today Michael is known for his portraits of musicians, including The Killers, Oasis, Damon Albarn, Ian Brown, and Interpol, as well as other celebrities and figures from the worlds of music, film, sport, and politics. His portraits have featured in many publications, including Filter, Time, De Zeit, and The NME. In addition to portraits for magazines, Michael has produced artwork and promotional images for record labels, artist management and commercial clients, including Adidas, Microsoft, Philips and the American rag clothing.
1: OK, what does photography mean to me? I've been wondering about this for a couple of days, but I've only kind of just got a chance to kind of really sit down and really think about this and record something. So here goes. So I suppose, well, on a basic level, I I imagine photography means the same to me as to most people, the recording of memories, faces and places we want to remember. However, I think in the same way that my work has altered over the years, what photography means to me has altered too. If I'm really honest with myself, photography didn't mean a huge amount to me early on, strange as that might sound. When I was an art student, I loved pop art and abstract art. Art college was the first time I started to use a camera for something more than snapshots to record those faces and places. I started to use a camera to make photos to work from. But I really didn't take photography very seriously as something in itself. Photos were a means to an end. I remember towards the end of a course, when one of my art teachers suggested I consider taking photography going forwards, as I displayed more ability with that than with the other areas of art that we'd pursued. And I'll have to admit, I was slightly devastated. That was... That was not part of the plan. Um, anyway, when the course ended, I took some time out and I stopped doing everything art-based to see what I came back to. Um, got a job for a little while, part-time job, earned some money, hung out with friends. <laughs> Waited to see what it was I came back to. And it was photography. So, um I, again, I used the job, the part-time job I had. I bought some cheap bits of equipment and started to take photographs again. A lot of photographs of everything and taught myself to print in the darkroom. And eventually I was photographing people the most, making contrasty black and white photographs of friends and some local musicians. And then two things that I loved was starting to merge for the first time, photography and music. But I still didn't have any sense of where I was going with it. Actually, I, I, actually, yeah, one one book changed that. Um, in a bookstore in Manchester, I was just kind of I was looking through some photography books and came across the photographer Anton Corbin, his first book, famous. It's a collection of his black and white photographs. That collection of moody black and white portraits of musicians. That that really hit me. That was just you know, one of those moments that you don't think you have, you, you see people have in a movie. Or it's like, wow. Um, this was how I wanted to see photography. This was what I wanted to do. Um, so I guess now photography had given me a direction. Anyway, I went back to study photography Um I mean it's not an exaggeration to say that it was now everything to me and I was going to see if I could make a life for myself doing this. Um, very different from the place my head was at when I finished art college first time round. Anyway, after completing all of my studies, um, I eventually moved to London and began to get work with a small magazine um, doing shooting music artists. And this led to other things. But my, I remember my very first my very first shoot was, it ended up being a quarter-page portrait of a small indie band. And then I got a copy of a magazine sent to me in the mail a few weeks later. And, um, you know, I saw my first picture in print in a magazine. And, <laughs> yeah, that was it. I was hooked. Um, that was over 20 years ago now. I've photographed a lot since then, mainly musicians, but other things too. It kind of, I suppose when you get to do one thing, you kind of occasionally get to ask to do others. So there's been sports people, the odd actor, film director, etc. I've travelled for some shoots, I've had some great experiences, and I've met some really fascinating people. Um, So photography gave me that. So what does photography mean to me now? (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's it's funny. It's one of those full circle moments. Something that once meant so little has grown to be much, much more. I mean, it's given me a life. Actually, yeah, this might sound a little bit trite, but outside of my family, photography means everything to me now. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Michael, for your contribution this week. And you are not the only person who's contributed to the podcast who has said that at the end. I don't think it's trite at all. I think it's incredibly endearing, and it really gives a sense of how important photography is to the photographer also have to recommend that Corbyn book Famous it is fantastic I'm not sure if you can still pick it up cheap or whether or not it's gone into the realms of unaffordable but do check out online on one of the uh, the good second hand uh, bookstores and see if you can find that Anyway, uh, what I also wanted to pick up on this week was an email that we received from Erin Springer, American photographer, who Bill Shapiro quoted from uh, last week's, uh, in last week's episode, I should say, uh, Erin had given us her thoughts around the long-form photographic project. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I really recommend it. It's already looking like one of our most popular episodes that I think we've done in the last 300. So there you go. With 301, we're reaching new heights. Anyway, Erin sent us an email, uh, Bill and I, which I thought I would share with you because I think it raises some more interesting points. She said, uh, I just listened to the episode. So interesting to share these perspectives and approaches with Richard. Uh, And Richard was wonderful. I loved Grant's comment about his daughter making photos from the car. And without that thought of my rigidity in the middle of the process, I think it's important that curiosity and emotion drives the experience, not intellect. That's sort of what I was getting at. Which brings me to his question of whether a person needs to know why they're making something before they start. I don't think it's important to know why, But it's to feel compelled. The meaning and the why comes through making it. Also, yes, I did take very long breaks while I was making the work. I focused on the project from October to January for three years. And the rest of the months were spent elsewhere and on other work. The long breaks were crucial. Uh, And the photographer that captures birds on the pole is Stephen Gill. Uh, Excellent book. And I agree, Aaron. Actually, I couldn't remember when we recorded it that it was Stephen. Um, However, I did put it in the show notes. Um, Aaron finishes up by saying thanks again and again. And thank you, Aaron, for um, sharing your thoughts with us. I think just finally to uh, finish up this uh, week... Uh, just want to remind you that I am launching the uh, Brooks Oxford Brooks University M.A. in Professional Photography this coming September. It's an online only uh, exhibition. Uh, exhibition? It's not an exhibition at all. It's a. It's an M.A. It's a qualification. It's education. Um, anyway, so that's what that is. Uh, there's going to be a webinar where you can ask me lots of questions. In the show notes for this particular episode, I'll put a link to that. So if you are interested, uh, even if you're interested in maybe future years joining us then do please uh, check that out at unitednationsofphotography.com. Find where this podcast is posted and you'll find all of the details. As I say, that's an MA in Professional Photography at Oxford Books University, uh, a course being led by me and is written by me and actually will also feature a lot of the people you've heard on the podcast over the last few years. Uh, And they'll be acting as mentors. What I think is going to be really interesting is it's going to have an international teaching team. So lots of uh, exciting developments with that. So do please check that out. Um, There's lots coming up over the, the coming weeks and months. We've got more. Uh, Special conversations to share with you, as well as people contributing to the What Does Photography uh, Mean to Me? There are a number of live events which are occurring around the launch of my next book, which I'll give you more information about in future episodes that will have an official book launch at Hatchards the oldest bookshop uh, in the UK and that's in Piccadilly in London and that will be at the end of April and it'll be fantastic to see you all there that will be an open invite to anybody who wants to come along to that anyway as always um there's been a lot to try and jam into the 20 odd minutes that we usually keep this podcast to, we only expand the format when we have a long conversation with somebody, as you know we do with Bill in the first week of every month. Anyway, um, seems to me as if it's getting a little bit warmer, a little bit sunnier, but I'm still going to take care.